From the capital city, I'm Kevin Allen. The volunteer admin lead for Alaska and Western Washington with Rubicon, Rachel Afford, who's from Fairbanks, Alaska, spoke with KINY about classes they are hosting in Juneau this week and what Rubicon stands for. Rubicon is a volunteer-led disaster organization being developed in Alaska throughout the past several years. We hold our first ever training for Team Rubicon down here this week, and we're getting them trained in all of our core capabilities. So yesterday we did site survey, which is what we do to evaluate needs after a disaster and what falls in line with our capabilities and lets our command team decide where to send resources and equipment. Today, they did a core operations class, which we do in the event of flooding. That's how we safely remove flooded sheetrock, other debris from the houses, things like that, so that homeowners can begin rebuilding after the disaster and repairing whatever's needed. That helps mitigate the development of mold and other hazards as well. And then starting tomorrow through most of the rest of the week, we're doing our chainsaw training. So that we use a lot both in response to disasters as well as for fire mitigation across the state. The two classes will take one day each to complete training. However, Alfred says they plan to return once or twice annually to Southeast to continue further training. Their training work contributes to ongoing projects that benefit the city and borough Juneau. Alfred also spoke on the relationships they have built in the community. We've been able to build some relationships with the exact people who would be responding. Uh, Capital City Fire donated the use of a fire station and are letting us use the Regional Fire Training Center for those classes. And like I said, we're coordinating where we're doing the chainsaw training with the city. So that is actually benefits borough projects over the long term. And we have multiple meetings scheduled throughout the week with other agencies, other players who, who would respond and who develop and support resiliency in Southeast Alaska. Rubicon was started by a pool of veterans in the country with a lot of experience they felt wasn't being used to their full potential. If an individual would like to sign up and learn more about their mission, Alfred says... We are not fully veteran. Anybody is welcome to join and participate. One of the best things about the organization, I think, is we we can find a role in a spot for anybody that has a desire to serve. We do have a huge percentage of our volunteers. Our veterans are first responders, familiar and used to the types of environments that we sometimes encounter in disasters. And so we're able to leverage those skills that already exist, plus provide additional training and deploy volunteers out across the country and internationally. If anyone's interested in getting involved with Team Rubicon and becoming a volunteer, doing training with us, and being more prepared to support and respond to their communities, you can go to teamrubiconusa.org, blog posts and reflections from Gracers who have deployed, and also sign up there. Their goal is to spearhead growth and support resiliency in Southeast. The Juno Off-Road Association's Noah Lager spoke on Capital Chat about the first off-road development park in Juneau and what it would entail. This proposal is based on work started years ago. It was re-energized in 2009 when the when ORV riding areas was identified as a park system gap in the Parks and Rec master plan. And then in 2020, Parks and Rec survey found off-road vehicle access was the top-rated request. Back in 2012, voters approved a 3% temporary sales tax for development of an ORV park. 
which resulted in about $250,000, which still exists for use today. So then in fall 2020, uh, Michelle Effers with CBJ Parks and Rec got together a working group that included the Juno Off-Road Association, Juno Douglas Motocross Association, and Southeast Jeep Club with the goal to identify ORV riding sites. The proposed site would be a 35-mile marker on Glacier Valley Highway. Blogger also noted that there would be no fish habitats, that it would be disrupting, and natural topography to separate from watershed. They are focused on field investigation and design for initial construction at this phase. The goal is to complete paperwork process by this fall. Logger thanked Polaris Inc. and Trail Mix for donations to the project. Once they have permission to move forward, they will need volunteers for the construction phase. Interested parties can reach out to us on the Facebook group, Juno Off-Road Association. And so, you know, we just want to make something happen good for the community to give our youth and adults and something stuff to do. A study on a second crossing to Douglas is underway, and the project planner said they are at a point where they are conducting public outreach. The project is being done in partnership between the city and borough of Juneau, the Alaska Department of Transportation, and Dowell. They are undergoing a planning and environmental linkages study, or PEL study, which will evaluate existing conditions and issues and work to develop a purpose and needs statement. After that, alternatives will be developed. Transportation Practice Area Leader for Dowell, Steve Noble, presented the work going into the crossing's PEL study to the Juno Chamber on Thursday. The PEL process enables us to really flesh out a lot of the issues during, during this planning stage and enables us to then step into the environmental and the design process with much more confidence that the project's going to move forward, uh, that it's not going to encounter opposition that it can't overcome, that it won't, it won't encounter fatal flaws that force us to go back and start from the beginning again. And Part of the process is working on a purpose and needs statement, which provides a basis for the development and evaluation of project alternatives. Noble says there are several elements of purpose and need that is not going away with this project. Congestion on the existing transportation, transportation infrastructure, Concerns about safety, the need for redundancy, improved grid network, uh, and, and, and then as well as the, the potential for residential commercial development on, on North and West Douglas Island. Noble said that by the winter of this year there will be proposed alternatives and that by next year the PEL process will be complete. The PEL study is not a long process, uh, in my world at least. It might seem long to others, but it's about a it's about an 18-month process start to finish, and we're probably four or five months in, and so we're, the goal for us is to be done by next spring. Noble said that pre-pandemic, the traffic on the bridge came in at about 15,000 cars a day. The pandemic over the last couple of years has depressed traffic volumes virtually everywhere, uh, and these numbers, are, these numbers are depressed somewhat from the, from the pandemic. Uh, and we're roughly on the bridge, there's uh, pre-pandemic, there was in the neighborhood of 15,000 cars a day. Post-pandemic, we're in the 13, 12 to 13 to 14,000 cars a day. It's it's working its way back up. We envision that, uh, you know, we haven't, we don't have any recent counts from 2022 uh, yet, so we'll see how things look. Noble said they want folks to reach out to them for their input. Comments can be submitted to jdnorthcrossing.com. 
News of the North spoke with chamber members about the project. Dave Hanna says he hopes it won't turn into just another study. I think they're off to a really good start. Uh, it looks like they've got a good team. I just hope that it doesn't get bogged down like these things always do and turn into just another study. Former Assemblymember Mary Becker said it's about time. I'm very happy that it's back on the on the agenda of our city, and we're thinking about the state, the city working together on this. When I was on the assembly, we did bring it up again as another, we should give it another shot. So I'm very pleased that it's happening. I hope that we can accomplish all the types of areas that were problems last time so that our public, the majority of our public, will be supportive and we can get it built. I think, I think I'm looking forward to this process. On the issue of school bond debt reimbursement that may be coming to the city and borough of Juneau, City Manager Rory Watt explained on Action Line what the process is and what the money's for. So the way it works is when we've approved uh, bond projects for our schools, uh, there's a state reimbursement program subject to annual appropriation by the legislature. Uh, and starting uh, when Governor Walker was in office, he started vetoing some of that m amount. Uh, and the amount that we would get from uh, the legislature's action if Governor Dunleavy signs the bill uh, would be $16 million uh, that we should have gotten over the last years. The city is still owed two years of back funding that was previously vetoed. Watt says no new projects have been undertaken because of that. We have old debt that's, uh, that, that uh, we're still paying off, uh, that um, you know, we haven't started any new school projects because they put a sunset on that, and it's a, it's a big problem. Our schools are getting older. Um, you know, we need to renovate those schools. It's kind of like you, you, can't, you can't let buildings just go backwards. And the magic number is $8 million, either plus or minus, for the city. We're doing a, a deficit budget with a substantial amount out of savings. And so if we get this $16 million from uh, the state, uh, it would be essentially an $8 million surplus on the budget. And if we don't, it would be an $8 million deficit. Uh, so it, it's a big number. City Manager Rory Watt. You're listening to News of the North. The Juneau Police is reviving its cadet program. The program was discontinued in the 90s, but Police Chief Ed Mercer said on Action Line that everything is in place for a return. We, we always try to put our, our, our brainstorming on what can we do when it comes to um, community outreach and also uh, recruitment and whatnot. So I'm happy to say that, you know, we have the program in, in place. Uh, everything is in place and ready to move forward, and we're shooting for July 1st to start advertising for the cadet program. Mercer said two officers are heading it up. Sergeant Chris Gifford is heading that up along with uh, Lieutenant Scott Erickson, and um, we are we are moving forward. Everything's in place. We got we're ordering uniforms. We're, we're we have policy. We have the curriculum as far as what we're going to be teaching our cadets, and we're excited. We're hoping that we we get some interest out there. General Police Chief Ed Mercer commenting on Action Line. Southeast Alaska Watershed Coalition Science Director Rebecca Belmore gave a presentation to the Ketchikan City Council last week on the organization's ongoing fecal bacteria monitoring project at Ketchikan's beaches. Fecal contamination samples have been taken from the 12 beaches on the road system from Nutson Cove to Herring Cove. 
Belmore, who is based in Juneau, said all of the 12 beaches show some form of contamination with a variety of causes, she says. When we're thinking about potential bacteria sources, there are, there are a lot here. Um, there are um, individual septic tanks that may not be functioning properly, um, private sewer treatment outfalls to the marine environment, wildlife and pet feces, um, private boats, ferries, cruise ships at sea and in harbors and docks, um, the big public um, wastewater treatment facility outfalls, um, and just potentially um, deficiencies in those systems where sewage may be leaking into the environment. And Belmore says the bacteria is coming from at least three specimens, humans, dogs, and birds. Belmore says the two types of bacteria found aren't necessarily harmful, but indicates that other contaminants might be present. And when we're looking at these bacteria concentrations, we're, um, we're um, comparing them to state water quality criteria, um, and those are um, established to protect human health. Um, and those are related to um, recreation, so being in the water, um, and harvest of shellfish for raw consumption. Um, and we're looking at two different groups of bacteria, enterococci and um, fecal coliform, um, and neither of those two in and of themselves are harmful necessarily, um, but they are a really good indicator that fecal contamination has occurred and that can bring with it other um, bacteria and viruses that can cause human health um, issues. The Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are advising consumers to double-check their jars of Jif peanut butter. Jif's creamy, crunchy, natural, and reduced-fat peanut butters have been linked to a salmonella outbreak across 12 states that has left 14 ill, with two people being hospitalized. Side effects from salmonella poisoning include fever, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. The J.M. Smucker Company announced a voluntary recall Friday of some Jif peanut butter products for potential salmonella contamination. The company says jars with lot codes 12, 74, 42, 5 through 21, 40, 42, 5 have been recalled and should be discarded. Jif is sold at retailers nationwide. Clinton and Haida organized a community picnic to celebrate Juno's graduates over the weekend. News of the North spoke with Jenny Brown from TNH. The different things that we have planned, so this event is the Kutan Hande Yakunahini Iktiwud Nakletsinet, and it means summer is coming and will make you stronger. And it's the end of the school year event for the kids, preschool, toddler, K-12. And it's part of our post-pandemic because it's one of the first big events that happened since the pandemic. We just wanted to get people out and get kids outside more involved with outdoor activities rather than stay home and be on their games or computers. Brown says TNH will be planning more family events for the summer. The Jualpa Mining Camp, also known as the Last Chance Basin Camp, opened over the weekend. Its main building began operations as the Last Chance Mining Museum, managed by Gary Gillette and Renee Hughes in 1997, part of the Gasnow Historical Society. However, the museum itself opened in early to mid-60s, Gillette says. This, this museum actually started in the early to mid-60s when the local chamber of commerce established it, and they called it the Last Chance Mining Museum and Opera House. They had a production up here called Hoochnew and Hotcakes that a lot of locals acted in. Tourist attraction. Also, you could climb up to the railroad level and hop on a train and they took you through the tunnels up. By the early 1970s, the insurance to operate something like that underground was so high they couldn't afford to do it anymore. They were the biggest mine in the world as well as one of the safest. 
processing the most amount of ore, gold, lead, and silver. When asked if they have anything special planned for Mining Month, Gillette had this news to share. Our organization is called the Gastineau Channel Historical Society, and we are working with another organization called the Treadwell Historic Preservation and Restoration Society. They're, you know, we work with them on the Treadwell Mine Historic Park. We are working together with David Stone's family and reprinting his book that was done in 1980. Been out of print for many, many years. It's called Hard Rock Gold. And so we will have those, uh, they're being printed right now, and those will be ready for sale at Gold Rush Days, which is June, what, 19th and 20th or 18th and 19th? It's a weekend. To find out more about the mine's history, you can visit The Last Chance Museum Friday through Monday, 2 to 5 p.m. at 1001 Basin Road. They are nonprofit and looking for more volunteers. Never miss a story or a newscast at KINYradio.com. Now you're up to date. For News of the North, this is Kevin Allen.